The Beatles are a pretty nice band, and we've got a lot to say. The Beatles are a pretty nice band, talk about them day after day. But we also love the outfit a lot, so are these songs better than your love? The Beatles are a pretty nice band, someday we'll judge if they're fine, oh yeah. Someday we'll judge if they're fine. Tomorrow never knows. Is that a seagull? Seagull is all and seagull is everyone. <laughs> Man, you think Ray was the turning point in the catalog? And then this comes out. Uh, just a tremendous song. John singing Love is All and Love is Everyone for the Leslie Speaker gives me chills. There's no turning back now, baby. Let's get weird. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is a top 10 Beatles song for me. Like, as you said, it's like a turning point in the catalog. But I would counter that it's a turning point in just pop music, really. Like, it's the beginning of anything that seems, like, off-putting in pop music. Or even just weird. Like, you could argue that this is, like, the biggest barrier that they broke during their run. I, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Crazy enough, this song was the first to be recorded for the album. Right. <laughs> how do you like? How uh, do you no, cu- cool down from there? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The lyrics were largely taken from the Psychedelic Experience, a 1964 book written by Timothy Leary, Ralph Meltzer, and Richard Alpert, later Rob Das, which contained an adaptation of the ancient Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, originally, the song was titled The Void, but it was originally changed to Mark the First because John figured that titling it The Void would avoid it being charged with writing a drug. He would avoid being charged with writing a drug song. Mm. Yes, very clever. Sure. <laughs> Lennon discovered the book at the Indica Bookshop, co owned by Barry Miles, on April 1st, 1966. It's cool that they know the exact day. Paul said the final track of Revolver is definitely John's. Round about this time, people were starting to experiment with drugs, including LSD. John had got hold of Timothy Leary's adaptation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is a pretty interesting book. For the first time, we got the idea that, as with ancient Egyptian practice, when you die, you lie in state for a few days, and then some of your handmaidens come and prepare you for a huge voyage. Rather than the British version, in which you just pop, which you just pop your clogs. <laughs> the Philistine's theme was all the more interesting. I didn't know what pop your clogs meant until this, until today either. So this is another, I learned British phrases. <laughs> I, like I, once again, you learn a British, new British phrase every day. Yep. Um, the, Paul also mentioned that it's one chord because they're, uh, they're interested in Indian music. They're, they were they were like far out, man, whenever they would hear a song with just one chord, and they were inspired to do that. Ringo is the one who came up with Tomorrow Never Knows. He said it in public for the first time on February 22nd, 1964, during a BBC television interview at London Airport on the band's return from conquering America. Starr had uttered the phrase when laughing off an incident that took place at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., during which one of the guests had cut off a portion of his hair. <clears throat> yeah, that's scary. <laughs> yeah, I don't want someone running at me with scissors. 
Mm-mm. No, you don't run with scissors. I mean, we- bad. Weird Al did, but you know. Mm. I wonder what scissors is called in Britain. It's probably different. Snippers. Snippers, perhaps. probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Jeff Henry explained how he got that amazing drum sound. He moved the bass drum microphone much closer to the drum than had been done before. This is him talking. There's an early picture of the Beatles wearing a woolen jumper with four necks, which was used as promotion for help when it was called Eight Arms to Hold You. I stuffed that inside the drum to deaden the sound. Then we put the sound through Fairchild 660 valve limiters and compressors. It became the sound of Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, really. Drums had never been heard like that before. True that. More nerd stuff. More nerd stuff. The use of quarter-inch audio tape loops resulted primarily from Paul McCartney's admiration for Stockhausen's Jazang der Jungling. I must have pronounced it wrong. By disabling the erase set of a tape recorder and spooling a continuous loop of tape for the machine while recording, the tape would constantly overdub itself, creating a saturation effect, a technique also used in music concrete. The tape could also be induced to go faster and slower. Paul encouraged the other Beatles to use the same effects to create their own loops. After experimentation on their own, the various Beatles supplied a total of 30 or so tape loops to George Martin. Six loops ended up being used on Tomorrow Never Knows. A seagull noise, which is actually a distorted recording of Paul McCartney laughing. Hmm. An orchestra playing a B-flat chord. Notes played on a Mellotron's flute setting. A second Mellotron on its violin setting. A finger rubbing the rim of a wine glass, heard midway through a song only in the stereo mix. And a distorted sitar, which is most clearly heard in the instrumental, instrumental break following the lines, It is being, it is being. And George placed uh, tambura as well on this. The final remarkable innovation in Tomorrow Never Knows was John Lennon's voice. For the first half, it was manually double-tracked. For the second half, the Abbey Road engineers, a.k.a. Jeff Emmerich, ran John's voice through a revolving Leslie speaker, more commonly found inside Hammond organs. It can be heard from the line, love is all, and love is everyone. George Martin pointed out that John wanted, John's direction was he wanted to sound like the Dalai Lama chanting from a hilltop. Jeff Emmerich later explained the response among those in the studio. Jeff said, it meant actually breaking into the circuitry. I remember the surprise on our faces when the voice came out of the speaker. It was just one of sheer amazement. After that, they wanted everything shoved for the Leslie. Pianos, guitars, drums, vocals, you name it. It's the new cowbell. It's the new harmonica. (laughs) Get that Leslie. Uh, That's right. Backwards guitar. Tape loops, seagulls. Backwards vocals. Jeff also said uh, about the first time that the Beatles heard John's voice through the Leslie. Uh, The effects seemed to be perfectly... perfectly coupled with the esoteric lyrics he was chanting. Everyone in the control room, including George Harrison, looked stunned. Through the glass, we could see John begin smiling. At the end of the first verse, he gave an exuberant thumbs up, and McCartney and Harrison began slapping each other on the back. It's the Dolly Lennon, Paul shouted. (laughs) George Martin shot me a wry grin. Nice one, Jeff, he said. Very nice. Despite the groundbreaking results, John later claimed to have been dissatisfied with the recording. Because of course... (laughs) <laughs> I should have tried to get my, near my original idea, the monks singing. I realize now that was what it needed. Okay. 
Harrison questioned whether Lennon fully understood the meaning of the song's lyrics. George said, basically, the song is saying what meditation is all about. The goal of meditation is to go beyond, that is, transcend, waking, sleeping, and dreaming. I'm not too sure John actually fully understood what he was saying. He knew it was, uh, he was onto something when he saw those words and turned them into a song. But to have experienced what the lyrics in that song are actually about, I don't know if he fully understood it. Ray Davies, it's the last time. Uh, I'm going to miss this. Have Ray, Ray, Ray Davies' take out of Beatles track, as far as we know. Uh, listen to all those crazy sounds. It'll be popular discotheques. I can imagine they had George Martin tied to a totem pole when they did this. <laughs> no! Don't! Stop it! <laughs> but get me down, lads. Stop popping uh, my clocks! <laughs> Whoa, hey. hey. They didn't kill him. <laughs> um... After completing the recording, Paul was eager to gauge the reaction of the band's contemporaries. He played a song to Bob Dylan on May 2nd at the Ladders Hotel Suite in London. As the track started, Dylan said dismissively, Oh, I get it. You don't want to be cute anymore. <clears throat> According to Marianne Faithful, who was also present, Dylan then walked out of the room. <laughs> I love that so story. <laughs> you don't want to be cute anymore. Mm. I get it. <clears throat> Paul recalled that when the Beatles played the song to members of the Rolling Stones and the Who, they visibly sat up and were interested, whereas Celia Black just laughed. <laughs> Tomorrow Never Knows was the last track to receive a public airing a few days before the album was issued commercially. Reaction to Revolver was generally ecstatic, according to Ian McDonald, with listeners marveling at the album's oral invention. To the Beatles' less progressive fans, however, the radical changes in the band sound were the source of confusion. The editor of the Australian teen magazine Mirabelle wrote, Everyone from Bisbane the Boodle hates that daft song Lennon sang at the end of Revolver. Recalling the release of his 1977 book The Beatles Forever, Nicholas Schaffner commented that whereas the group's more traditional fans warmed to Paul McCartney's new songs, some people thought Lennon was spreading complete gibberish, and concluded that the poor lad had slid off the deep end. Just you wait. Yes. Writing in the recently launched Crawdaddy, Paul Williams derided Tomorrow Never Knows and the album single Yellow Submarine, sang of John Lennon's song, A Good Artist Doesn't Publish First Drafts. Huh. And there were some positive, you know, some people got it. Uh, reporting from London for the Village Voice, Richard Goldstein said Revolver had opened up electronic music as a commercial proposition. Adding John Cage, move over. The Beatles are now reaching a super receptive audience with electronic soul. In 2006, Pitchfork ranked Tomorrow Never Knows at number 19 on its list of the 200 greatest songs of the 1960s. And Q Magazine placed the track 75th on a list of the 100 greatest songs of all time. It was number 18 on Rolling Stone's list of the best Beatles songs and number 4 on similar list compiled by Uncut in 2001 and Mojo in 2006. So who's calling me? In 2018, the music staff of Time London ranked it at number 2 on their list of the best Beatles songs. According to acclaimed music, it is the 157th most celebrated song in popular music history. Sure. And, of course, there's the uh, James Murphy, Murphy origin story of LCD Sound System. 
Gradually, Tim Goldsworthy brought James Murphy around to the pleasures of dance music. Drugs helped. Goldsworthy remembers the first time Murphy took ecstasy. The DJ put on Tomorrow Never Knows. And James was there dancing with his eyes closed. Everybody formed a ring around him and started chanting his name. James looked at him and was like, Yeah! He was there. <laughs> of course, the song was featured during the final scene of the Mad Men episode, Lady Lazarus. Don Draper's wife, Megan, gives him a copy of Revolver, calling his attention to a specific track and suggesting start with this one. Don is struggling to understand youth culture. At one point, he asked, uh, when did music become important? And Megan says, it's always been important. I'm like, yeah, Megan. Megan gets it. Uh, after contemplating the song for a few puzzled moments, he shuts it off. Boo. Uh, the track also played over the closing credits. The rights to the song cost the producers around $250,000. The title of the song inspired the title of James Bond's 1997 adventure, Tomorrow Never Dies. When screenwriter Bruce Firestein, still looking for a title, heard the song on the radio. The original title of the film, then, was Tomorrow Never Lies, but a typo changed it into the eventual title. Sure. Uh, I covered this song a long time ago um, at a very small church cafe that the, um, where it was typically just acoustic performances, and they were doing a Beatles night, and I, we rolled in a drum set, <laughs> a couple loud amplifiers, and three of us just bashed through this song, squealing feedback and all. Uh, but we were nice. We gave everyone earplugs. It was super fun. I, it was like one of the cooler moments of playing, <laughs> playing music. Wow. That sounds crazy. It was fun. Love counts two in the one sentence. Love is all. Love is everyone. Josie Scale, of course. A yeah. Totally. Yeah. The Beatles are a pretty nice band. Talk about them day after day. But we also love the outfield a lot So are these songs better than your love? The Beatles are a pretty nice band Someday we'll judge if they're fine Oh yeah, someday we'll judge if they're fine